Hallelujah, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And yet the mission seemed impossible. Jesus, the risen Jesus, sends out his disciples. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I am sending you. In other places we call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It's to be a worldwide gospel movement, a movement of God's kingdom. As his disciples are dispersed over the entire globe in order to bring the good news, in order to bring his blessing to bear on all nations, on all peoples. That was the mission. But two generations after Pentecost, when St. John writes the book of Revelation, that mission seems impossible. Now, in those years, between the years of, of Jesus' resurrection and his sending the disciples, to when John writes, on one hand, a lot has happened, and on another hand, not much has happened. What hasn't happened is the thing that they all were hoping would have happened by then, which is that Jesus would have returned, that he would have come back and said, mission accomplished, and restore his kingdom in full. But alas, two generations later, Jesus still had not returned. And not only that, but that global gospel movement hadn't really seemed to flourish. The church had grown just a little bit. But not only that, John, when he writes, when he receives his vision and writes Revelation, he has seen every single one of his fellow apostles be martyred for the faith. And not just them, but many other Christians besides, killed for their confession of Christ Jesus. And now John himself, as he sees this vision, is in exile. He's sent away onto this little spit of land called Patmos, which was a, a penal colony for the Roman Empire. There, John is an exile, no doubt feeling utterly defeated and wondering, what has God up to in all of this? And is this mission ever going to take hold? But as John is in that situation, in that status as an exile, it's kind of a, a fitting and an indicative place when you think about for the whole church. Because what is the church? Then, as now, the church was a band of exiles, those who were exiled from their eternal home, and those who not only that, but even in this life, in this age, were on the sidelines of society, seemingly irrelevant to history. They were on the margins of the culture. That's how the church existed and, and how they lived. And that's why God gives to John there on Patmos as an exile. It's why God gives to him this vision that we know of as Revelation. And when you think of the book of Revelation, no doubt you think of things like the, the Left Behind series, right? You think of the end times and all of the, the scary monsters. And to be sure, there's plenty of that in the book of Revelation. But we shouldn't miss the mission of this book, the purpose of the vision, which is much more humdrum, but much more important ultimately. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to strengthen the church of Jesus Christ, to encourage her in the midst of her earthly sojourn and exile, to strengthen her to live as the people of God wherever they find themselves, wherever you and I find ourselves, so that we could live faithfully as the exiled people of God, so that we could live faithfully from the sidelines of society. And for that reason, I think that this book of Revelation is just as relevant for us today as it was for those Christians some 2,000 years ago. Because look, 
we are still that band of exiles. We are very much on the sidelines of society in so many ways. Now, for a few hundred years, the church did have kind of a privileged place in society where we were able to have more control and more authority, where what the church said was generally accepted. For however long that lasted, it's not there anymore. And especially over the last few decades in what's called the West and the United States of America in particular, we've seen how the church has been moved more and more to the margins of the culture. So how should we respond to that? How do we respond to this new status, which is really an old status, as exiles, as the marginalized, as those who are on the sideline of society? How should we respond to that? What we see throughout our world, Christians and, and churches respond in all sorts of different ways. But as I've thought and reflected about this, I think of it in terms of kind of a taxonomy of different critters, okay? Just bear with me for a moment. How do we respond as Christians to this marginalized status? Well, there's some Christians and some churches that respond like chameleons. And what does a chameleon do? Well, a chameleon's able to change his color, right? He can change his skin just to blend in, just to, to fit in with his surroundings. And so there are some Christians which, in response to this new and old status of being on the margin, says, wait a second, that's not comfortable. We want to, we want to be able to get along. We don't want to be looked at as weird. And so they do what they have to do in order to stay relevant, in order to, to fit in with the rest of society, like a chameleon. And there's something to be said for that, right? Because as Christians, we always want to be able to bring the gospel in a language that is relevant and accessible to all people, absolutely. But you can go too far when you start thinking, well, I've got to do whatever I have to do just to be acceptable. I never want to feel like a misfit. But there's some ways in our world where we should feel like misfits. And Jesus says, beware to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Chameleon is not ultimately a viable strategy for the church. And so others go in the total opposite direction. Rather than being a chameleon, they're more like a cornered dog. Hmm. You ever see how a cornered dog responds? They want to guard their turf. They say, hur, hur. they are going to, that's pretty good, right? They're going to protect themselves no matter what. Because, hey, look it, I used to be in charge right here, and I'm going to be in charge again, come what may. Christians also are tempted to respond this way, and, and churches to, to fight back and say, no, we are going to claim our turf. We know what it's like to be in control, to have that power. We, do, we aren't going to lose that easily. And so we will fight if that's what we have to do in order to bring it back. Once again, there's something to be said for this, of Christians standing their ground, and saying that we are going to stand on the Lord who is our truth, and we're not just going to, to roll over. <laughs> That's good. It fits with the cornered dog thing. Okay. But we can miss out the fact that our calling as Christians is not to claim some kind of earthly kingdom, but as Jesus says, our kingdom is not of this world. No, instead, we don't respond as, as cornered dogs either. All right, so neither chameleon nor a cornered dog. And there is a third option, which I think is becoming more and more popular, and which, frankly, I think is maybe most popular among us Lutherans, and that is the cat. <clears throat> now, why the cat? All right, now I'm going to offend the cat people once again. But it's just a, a fact that cats are aloof to what is going on around them. They don't care. And every other time you look at a cat, what are they doing? 
they're licking themselves. They're either sleeping or they're licking themselves in order to maintain their feline purity, right? I'm sure they have other reasons to do that, but that's how I see it. And this too is a temptation for Christians when we find ourselves marginalized in the world, sidelined by society to think, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm just going to stay aloof. Maybe I'm going to take a nap or more likely I'm going to continue to attend to my own purity and not be stained by the world out there, right? Chameleons, corner dogs, cats, kittens. These are different responses that Christians can and do take to this status of being a band of exiles. And as different as they might seem, in fact, they bear something fundamental and essential in common, which is that all of them, all of them, have a faulty vision of Christ, have a faulty vision of who Christ is and where he rules and reigns. And that's why we need revelation. Revelation corrects our vision. And it starts by giving us a vision of the Son of Man in all his glory. Now, Son of Man is a phrase that we're familiar with. It's Jesus' most common, his favorite designation for himself as the Son of Man. And I think sometimes we hear that term, Son of Man, and we think, well, that's just another way of saying mere mortal. And there's a little bit of that in there. It's son of man as opposed to son of God. And Psalm 8 says, you know, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So there's that aspect to it. But more commonly and more to the point with what John sees here, the son of man is a powerful figure. In fact, when the disciples and others heard of Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels, they would have been utterly taken aback by that claim. In fact, this is one of the things that when he comes to his trial, when the, the religious leaders and the opponents of our Lord, when they hear him refer to himself as the Son of Man, they recognize it immediately as a messianic claim. It goes back to the book of Daniel which bears many similarities to the book of Revelation as an, an, a prophetic and an apocalyptic book. And one passage in particular, this is from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is a term for Jesus in his exalted, glorified state as the resurrected Son of God who has been given and entrusted with all authority, all dominion, and all the kingdoms of the earth. This is what John sees. He sees this vision of Jesus as the Son of Man, whereas throughout the Gospels, what we're more familiar with is Jesus in what we call his humiliation, his humbleness. Here we see Jesus in his glorification, high and lifted up. And there's many aspects of this picture which are frankly terrifying and intimidating. That's why John falls down flat on his face as one though dead, right? He plays possum and says, maybe he won't recognize me if I don't move, right? He puts his hand on his head and says, fear not, in those familiar Jesus words. Fear not, 
I am the first and the last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. John sees this vision of the Son of God, and I want to just briefly touch on these different aspects that he sees of our Lord Jesus. He sees him there in a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. This is the, the vestige, the, the vesture of Aaron, of the priests. Here's Jesus in, our, in his priestly garb there to intercede forever before the people of God. Then he sees his hair, his, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That again is an allusion to the ancient of days, the Son of Man exalted and lifted up. His eyes were like a flame of fire purifying his, his vision as all his people, as he looks on them, he purifies them from their sins. His feet were like burnished bronze, fern, uh, refined in a furnace, which Daniel tells us means these are the feet that are going to stand fast instead of those feet of clay as all the kingdoms of the earth have. Instead, here is a kingdom that will endure and stand, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. As we hear in the book of Hebrews, his word is like a double-edged sword, piercing bone and marrow, the power of the word of our Savior. It is a fearsome, incredible vision. And he holds in his hands, says, all the seven stars, which in the ancient world is still today. Many believed in astrology, that it was the movement of the, the stars when there, he's talking about the planets. They only understood there to be seven planets at that time. That that was what held our destinies and that was what held power over all creation. But now we see that he's got the whole world in his hands. The whole world in his hands. It'd be a good song. He possesses it all as the commander of the cosmos, Christ our King, the Son of Man. But key to John's vision here of the Son of Man is not only who he is and, and what he looks like, but also where he is located. John says, I saw a vision of the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands, the seven golden lampstands. Now, what are these lampstands? This is symbolic of the churches. The churches that he'll write this letter to, which are themselves, seven being that representative number, are representative of the whole church on earth. When he sees this vision of the Son of Man, where is he? He is in the midst of the church. The church, which is that lampstand, which has this vocation and calling to shine his light before men as those who have been called out of darkness to speak forth the excellencies of his glorious light. That is where the Son of Man resides. That is where he lives, precisely in the midst and among the church of Jesus Christ. This is so pivotal and so significant for us to recognize because to the extent that churches and Christians fail to recognize this vision of Jesus, the one who is the commander of the cosmos, the one who dwells and reigns in our midst, to the extent that we lose that vision of Jesus, to that same extent, are we going to try and compensate with our own power and wisdom and ingenuity? Insofar as we fail to see Jesus as he truly is, high and lifted up, ascended and exalted over all creation, to the extent that we fail to see that, we are going to fail as a church and instead try to take over and fill in the gaps where we think Jesus is not in charge. 
but because Jesus is in charge, we are able to be calm and confident in our calling as Christians, to lean into this identity and, and not try to be something we're not, whether it's chameleons or cornered dogs or, yes, even cats. Instead, what will, can we be? You might think of it like this. As Christians, as the church, we're the Lord's lightning bugs. <laughs> I love lightning bugs. They go by many different names. Some of you know them as fireflies, some as, as something else. To me, they were always and will always be lightning bugs, right? The Latin uh, scientific name for it, for those of you who are so inclined, is lampidae. Lampidae comes from the Greek word lampain, the verb lampain, which means to shine. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in that text in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men. So the lightning bugs let their light shine. And I think about how it's a fitting metaphor for the vocation and calling of the church in a few different ways. First of all, the, the church is called to be a light in the midst of the darkness. That's when the lightning bugs shine their light, of course, is in the midst of the dark. So also, as we live in a dark world, we are called to bring the light of our Lord out there. And not only that, but as Christians and as believers, we devote ourselves to this light. I found out something interesting about lightning bugs. They are extremely efficient in their use of energy. Now, if you take just your random incandescent bulb, I guess these are LEDs, but if you were to take a, an incandescent light bulb, it uses only about 10% of its energy to create light. The other 90% goes to heat. That's why it hurts your fingers if you touch a light bulb that's been on for a while. Lightning bugs, fireflies, use almost 100% of their energy just to shine that light. Now, spiritually speaking, this is how we as the church devote ourselves to the main thing. We don't get distracted and disturbed by all of these other things that could take our attention and our energy, but instead we focus on how can we shine in the world? How can we bring his light? As Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given besides. We devote ourselves and our energies to shining his light. That's what matters most, keeping that first thing first. And one more thing about lightning bugs. They are small but mighty. You know, we were down in Tennessee recently for vacation in the Great Smoky Mountains. And while we were down there, we heard about this incredible thing that they have down there, the synchronous uh, flashing of the lightning bugs. Any of you heard of this before? The synchronous flashing. So it happens once a year, right around this time of year, where all of the fireflies, as dusk falls, as the light falls, will all flash in unison. It's so cool that they actually have to hold a lottery for people to be able to get in and see it. Only a thousand people get to see it each year. So you have to get a, a lottery ticket just to go and to see this flashing of the synchronous lights because these lightning bugs, while they are small, when they are working in coordinated effort, they are mighty, even epic. And so it is for us as Christians and as the church we may be small. We may feel like we are sidelined by society. But together, working together side by side under the synchrony of the Spirit, we are mighty. Shining not with any light in ourselves, but with the, the borrowed, uncreated light of our Lord that dwells in each and every one of you. Given to you in holy baptism and nurtured through his word and sacrament, the Spirit shines in you all. Listen says somewhere in the scriptures that man looks on the outward appearance, 
We see that again and again and again. And we are tempted to look at the church and just see a people who are marginalized by the culture on the sidelines of society and say, aren't they so weak? Aren't they so old-fashioned? To look and to see the church and, and to mock and say, oh, they are just spinning that same old song. They're as old-fashioned as vinyl, right? And they are that broken record singing the same old song of salvation in a crucified and risen Jesus. Get something new already. Vinyl is so played out. I'll tell you what. Vinyl is making a comeback, A. And B, we never move beyond that same old song of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on what? The heart. And the heart of history is the work of the Son of Man in and through this humble, humdrum people we call church. So let your light so shine before men that they may see that light and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.